So again in this talk, um, please remember I am painting a map. I'm uh, continuing with this kind of map of practice. And as such, um, you don't actually have to do anything with it. And for most of you, um, some of what I say tonight will, will just not be you know, directly relevant to your experience now. And for others, it, it is. And that's, that's totally fine. So in a way, you can, I hope, just sit back and sort of relax and enjoy um, my brushstrokes. Actually, the Buddha's brushstrokes. Um, and <laughs> it's uh, really fine on this retreat, I think, for everyone to regard at least some portion of what's being said, what's being taught, what's being listened to as the planting of seeds. So that that's for everyone in here that will be the case. No matter where you are in practice, some degree of this will just be in the realm of planting seeds. And as such, it's still fantastic. It's still wonderful. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> Sometimes, I mean, I, I, in a way I've spoken twice, once on the opening talk and once on that other talk about relationship with practice, but I, I do think it's actually very, very key. What, what happens as we listen to teachings? What happens in the heart? What happens in the mind? What happens in the self-view? Very, very significant. <clears throat> but when we consider a, a, a life of practice, a life on the path, um, we actually see that that includes a lot. It's a, it's a wide scope, you know, what, what it means to be on the path, what it means to live a life of inquiry, of dedication, of cultivation, etc., and so it includes many things. It includes learning to be with our experience. And for most of us in this room, that's where we start, very much the foundation of insight meditation. Can I be with the experience, whatever it is, whatever it is, uh, physical experiences, sensual experiences, emotional experiences, cognitive experiences? Uh, can I learn to develop this quality of presence, of mindfulness, of, of meeting life? Uh, you know, so beautiful and so crucial. And in that and through that, um, learning and coming to uh, be, coming to, to be more intimate with life, more intimate with experience and uh, connected. Connected. It's a huge, huge uh, part, huge um, current in practice. And connected with what? Connected with oneself. You know, so important. Um, connected perhaps with aspects of oneself, parts of oneself that one hasn't been connected to, that one's kind of shoved into a corner out of um, dislike, rejection, judgment, fear, uh, fear of the disapproval of others, all kinds of reasons. You know, but becoming usually gradually intimate with and connected with those parts of ourselves. They, they can be all kinds of things all kinds of things in, in the domain of our being. Learning also, as part of the path, part of the, the breadth of the path, to be intimate and uh, to know how to connect to others, other human beings, other animals as well. 
learning the 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 art and the skills of relationship you know this is difficult this is really difficult nowadays we put a lot of pressure on relationships especially intimate romantic relationships they're supposed to be kind of you know absolutely the bee's knees be all and end all and it, it puts a lot of pressure on them it's a real skill to be able to be in that kind of uh, relationship, or even just a friendship, and really make it work. It's a real art. Communication within that. Do we know how to communicate? Are we learning how to communicate? Communicate what's lovely, communicate what's difficult. So all this is part of the path. Connection as well, intimacy as well with earth and nature, with life in, in, in the broader sense. Am I connected, am I open, am I intimate with life? And again, in that, through all that, with that, there is, again, usually gradually, an opening of the heart that happens. It's like the heart literally opens to life. And as well, very often for many people, there are different levels of healing going on. Uh, psychological level, emotional level, physical level healing going on. It's all part of the path. This is all, all part of the, the, the wide river of practice. And I would hope that, again, gradually, slowly, as part of the path, we learn, we develop our capacity to express ourselves, to express this unique manifestation of what I am, what you are in life. And we express that creatively. So there's a sense of learning, uh, growing in our creative self-expression. And a wholeness comes in. A wholeness comes into oneself and one's life. A sense of integration. All these disparate parts, parts that may be wounded, parts that may be dismissed, integrated, integrated into the being. And even more, we cultivate what's beautiful. We cultivate the beautiful qualities of mind. You know, generosity, loving kindness, compassion, equanimity, the list go on, patience really, really important. A huge part of the path is this cultivation of what's beautiful. And, again, gradually and in time, uh, we learn to explore the kind of range of the depths of consciousness and, and the sort of capabilities, the capacities of consciousness. You know, what are the kind of openings and states of which consciousness is capable so all all that and more is part of the path. So, so to be on the path in our life is a very, very wide thing. It's so wide. <clears throat> and then the Buddha uses this word nirvana, nibbana in the Pali, nirvana in Sanskrit. And if one sort of pays careful attention to the way he uses it, in, in, the, in, the, in the discourses. What you notice is that it, he's actually using it sort of in different ways at different times, or more accurately, highlighting different aspects of nirvana at different times. And this is quite important. And within that, at times, he does talk, he does talk of the deathless, the unborn, the unconditioned, or the unfabricated. It's it's right there in the in the suttas in the discourses. Now, given all that, what I've said so far, at different stages on the journey, and it's really not a linear thing. In in, in all of what I've said, may unfold in 
uh, will unfold in a very individual order for everything. So not everyone can do everything at exactly the same time. It's just impossible. So there are periods in our journey, uh, in our life practice journey, where different aspects of that width of what's available in the path feel more necessary than others. It's more where the heart is. It's more what we feel called for. And I, I would say that's actually um, totally appropriate and fine. Totally appropriate and fine. And at different times on the journey, different aspects of the path, different strands of the path, will actually pull more on the heartstrings. The heart really feels drawn. Perhaps I really want to explore my creativity. I really want to re-enter into a relationship which I made such a, a mash of before <laughs> and kind of see, see if we can do a little bit better this time or whatever. Um, whatever it is, some... Sorry. sorry. <laughs> so, um, I'll behave myself. Um, <laughs> uh, what, whatever it is, the, the heart actually feels pulled in different directions at different times. And this is important, you know, and, and to respect that and listen to it. It's very easy in a life of practice, even in the stretch of time of retreat, to lose connection and lose touch with and lose sight of why we are practicing to lose touch with a sense of um, direction and aspiration that's meaningful for ourselves, okay? So we can hear, you know, I might say something, John might say something, another teacher, you read this, you read that, the Buddha says this or that, and you say, I'm practicing for this, and it fits all the reasons, but actually it's not where the heart is. It's not where the heart is, and how easy it is for the, us to lose as human beings our meaningful connection. What what is meaningful to me right now? What makes sense for me? Why I'm practicing? This is what I want. I know what I want right now. This, and I know that practice is a big part of what can get me that. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? This I think is really crucial because I see it all the time with practitioners. Uh, going in and out of losing connection with the, the meaningfulness of why they're practicing. And it's really important to keep that alive and to nourish that. And it has to do with listening to oneself. And actually, what, what right now, at this stage of my journey, this period, these months, these weeks, these years, what does have meaning for me? What is meaningful for me? But tonight what I want to talk about is, uh, is the deathless, the unfabricated, the unborn, nirvana in that sense. Now, we've talked about this chitta-matra practice and this kind of open awareness and the vastness of that and the beauty of that. And very common for that to get labelled, that sense of vast awareness, that sense of spaciousness, silence, etc., for that to get labelled the unborn, the unconditioned, the deathless. Okay. Now, sometimes a person will come right out and say that, that is the unconditioned. Other times, uh, they're, they're a little more, um, what's the word, insinuating. It's not, it's not quite direct. Um, other times it's more just a statement like awareness is the unconditioned, awareness is the unborn, the unfabricated. <clears throat> uh, other times someone might say the now is, the now is what's the ultimate reality, etc. Now we've talked about all these uh, in the last couple of days, 
and I know uh, some of it was difficult to understand, but um, we've explored that these actually cannot be ultimately ultimately real in in any sense, or certainly any kind of finality. The Chittamatra space, again, is just a perception. It's it's a lovely perception, it's a very deep perception, it's a very freeing perception. It's still on the level of perception, and as such, it's fabricated. It's not unfabricated, and one can go beyond it. Now, some scholars uh, around say that in all the Pali Canon suttas, which probably fills about a shelf load, uh, one rack of a shelf, that the Buddha only once, only once in all those teachings, refers to an unborn and unfabricated and unconditioned. And um, there is no deathless. It's a misunderstanding, mis- a misperception. He didn't really say it, etc. Um, I'm not a scholar, but I've read enough suttas to know that's absolutely not true. And, uh, in fact, I've jam-packed the talk tonight with <laughs> a million quotes from the Buddha just to show that. Um, and I could have put way more in. I could have probably filled uh, easily an hour straight of just quotes uh, saying that. But what, what, I, I, what I really want to point to, though, and this is important, it goes back to some, some other talk I gave, is the tendency of human beings often, often, not always, often, to predecide something to predecide on the nature of a truth um, before they've actually, in this case, developed their practice to a depth where they actually know it firsthand. Now, that, to me, that's a little, well, disconcerting, a little suspect. And um, it becomes just a defending of an intellectual opinion because my teacher said so or because my, my tradition or, or whatever says so. So uh, to me, this is a practice question. It's a practice mm-hmm. question. And has one, if I, you know, going to the other ridiculous extreme, if I'm a new meditator and I, and I go to an evening class of meditation, I sit down for 15 minutes and I, and then I, I get up and say, there is no deathless, because I just had a lot of thoughts. Uh, it's, you know, a little extreme. But uh, it's a practice question, okay? Other people will say the, uh, you know, emptiness and the unconditioned are kind of mutually exclusive. And if, you, if you're if you going in the direction of emptiness, you can't go in the direction of the unconditioned. Um, I don't think they contradict each other. And hopefully tonight I can make some sense of that. Or people say oh, it's only a Hinayana thing, it's only a Theravada thing. The Mahayana don't really believe that. But actually here's a quote from Nagarjuna, uh, Praise of the Super Mundane text. Um, he's sort of talking to the Buddha in his head, and he says, you, the Buddha, you have said that there is no liberation so long as the absence of representation is not realized. In other words, so long as you have not gone beyond the unfabricated. In uh, Mahayana traditions, more often, rather than the unfabricated or the unconditioned, the name more often given to it is Dharmakaya. So you will, you will probably come across that. And again, through... I really don't want to get into this, but through history that, that word has had different meanings. But now that's more the sense of what Theravada practitioner will call the unfabricated, or some, the, some Mayana practitioners will call the, the Dharmakaya. But it's really this question of pre-deciding, and are, are we as practitioners pre-deciding something that I think is really important. So... <clears throat> I mean, it might be interesting, I don't know, because this group's been together so long, but it's almost like 
it's it's too late for me to ask, but sometimes I feel like asking, what what do you want me to say about it? <laughs> you know, if I just shut up for once, uh, for thirty seconds, and just in the silence, like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about it. What do what do you hope I say? Or you might be of the school. I hope you say nothing, because you shouldn't say anything about it. You shouldn't go near it. You want me to say there is or there isn't. <laughs> you don't have to tell me out loud. <laughs> but it's interesting. And, and so what I'm pointing to is the... we. I think all human beings are going to have... They're going to approach this with a slight emotional bias from the beginning. Either I want it to exist or I don't. And that exists. And then the question is, how much integrity do we have? Are we just going to you know, look for things that... Um, What's the word? Uh, justify that, or 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 are we actually going to really find out something? <clears throat> let's let's try and trace it in terms of what we've done on this retreat, and I come back again and again to this this idea and this this um, fact of fading, which we've talked about several times. As we cling less as human beings, um, sometimes as the clinging goes deep, there is a fading. There's a fading of experience. As we uh, identify less, as the self-sense gets less, there's also a fading in perception. There's a a gradual fading in perception. As the kind of ignorance dies down in any moment, there's also a fading. Now, I could say all that in the positive, in terms of as we let go, the more we let go, the deeper we let go, there's a fading. The more we disidentify, there is a fading. Remember, if we go back to that talk on anatta, or the three characteristics um, at the beginning of the near the beginning of the retreat, there's degrees of disidentifying. So we can disidentify body sensations and then thoughts a bit more subtle, and then things like disidentifying with consciousness, quite subtle to do, quite um, takes quite a skill to, to not identify consciousness as me or mine in that moment, just see it as just it's just happening, it's just happening in the universe. Then even beyond that, how about disidentifying from the intention to pay attention in any moment. So you've got something in consciousness, maybe a sense of stillness or brightness in the body or something, and you're looking at it, it's steady, and you're aware of the attention there, and you you can actually feel the kind of um, either throbbing of intention to be present, intention, intention, or, or a more steady sense of tension in the intention, and you regard that very, very subtle, not me, not mine. So that's a very, very deep level of disidentifying. Do you understand? Mm. So there's a spectrum with all this, um, and to, uh, or, or seeing that something's empty, and including, as we talked last night, awareness and time, also very, very subtle things, seeing those are empty. That's a way of saying letting go of ignorance, having ignorance be less in that moment. And this fading, as we've said already, has a continuum to it. In other words, things might just begin to sort of lose a bit of definition, begin to be a bit softer in consciousness uh, at one end, all the way down uh, to uh, beginning to blur, really fading a lot, disappearing, completely disappearing, even the thing that it's disappeared to beginning to disappear. So even a sense of space that might be there, beginning to kind of, that begins to fade, and then what, and then what. So there's a real continuum here. Um, 
broken record excerpt number 147. This is really, 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 really helped by Samadhi. <laughs> okay? Um, and Samadhi, I don't want to get into it tonight, but I've talked with some of you, there, there are different kinds of Samadhi, and, but it's particularly helped by the kind of Samadhi where there's, there is a sense of well-being in the body and the sense of some sense of pleasantness or um, joy even, or peace, that, uh, more than anything else, cushions the being, cushions the consciousness from fear when things, when the world basically starts falling apart in front of you because you're seeing its emptiness. More than anything else uh, that I know of, the samadhi will, will help that and really give a sense of permeating the being with well-being and, and reassurance. And, and warmth. There's another reason why um, why samadhi is important, and we actually haven't talked much about samadhi, but it's come up a little bit in the question answer periods. Um, there are, as some of you will know, eight jhanas, and so jhanas one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, of, of deepening sort of degrees. There also, you could say, I, I don't want to get into this too much, but there, as you go deeper in the jhanas, there, you could say you're also going deeper in a kind of fading. Okay, as you go deeper in each in in the level of samadhi, there's a fading of self and object as well. You know, saying there's a there's a, a thinning out of experience. Okay, so one's getting used to fading through samadhi, a very deep samadhi. But um, another reason that my teacher pointed out uh, years ago, I remember, is that. Some of these states, we talk about you know, like the seven, what's called the seventh jhana is something called the dimension of nothingness. And the sixth jhana is the infinite consciousness, and infinite space is the fifth, and the eighth is neither perception nor non-perception. Now some of these states, an insight meditator practicing deeply will actually stumble into. Uh, either completely suddenly finding themselves in one of these, or somewhere in the vicinity. It's like a state somewhat similar, maybe not completely absorbed, but somewhat similar to that. And it would be very easy for someone stumbling into one of these states to say, this is the unfabricated, i found it, I've done it, <laughs> job done, where's my cigar? <laughs> um, very easy. So one of the reasons my, my teacher Ajahn Tanasara will point out is, is, really, is really good to actually explore samadhi you know, in one's life, um, and remember, samadhi is a lifelong exploration, is that one gets to know these states and knows what is not the deathless, what is not. Now, because sometimes if you just get, it can happen, you're practicing very intensely inside meditation, you just kind of get catapulted into a state of nothingness. At first, it looks like absolutely everything has disappeared, and almost everything has disappeared, but there's still a sense of nothingness. There's still a perception of nothingness. As such, as such, it's a it's still in the realm of perception. You're perceiving nothing. It sounds incredibly abstract, I, I'm probably aware, but there's still one is struck by no, it's like nothingness is really in your face. Nothingness, the fact of nothingness. Uh, the other reason um, or the other the other thing that's important here with the fading as a continuum, and I threw this out at some point, I can't remember when, is that we also gradually realize, because we're slowly, gradually 
understanding that things are empty. So the fading and the understanding of the emptiness go together. And what we realize is, I can let go of this, I can let go of that, I can let go of it all, because actually it's empty. So our understanding of emptiness is deep, deepening. Um, there's nothing really real that I'm losing. And that's a, a, it's also a huge reassurance to the being. It enables us to let go. Does that, does that make sense? Okay, <clears throat> so here's some quotes. <laughs> monks. So the Buddha's talking to some monks. That dimension should be known where the eye or where vision stops and the perception of form fades. That dimension should be known where the ear stops and the perception of sound fades. That dimension, etc., where the nose stops and the perception of aroma fades where the tongue stops and the perception of flavor fades, where the body stops and the perception of tactile sensation fades, where the the mind or the intellect stops and the perception of ideas, mental images, mental phenomena fades. That dimension should be known. Okay? I don't know how more clearly he could say it. But um, But which dimension is this, Rob? This is what I'm talking about, the unfabricated, the, the deathless. I'm not, I'm not clear what the unfabricated is. I'm trying Are you talking about lack of inherent existence or nirvana? Or? I'm talking about an aspect of nirvana. Okay. Oh. Um, so let's, let's separate two things. One is, and hopefully it will be clear in the talk, one is an understanding of lack of inherent existence, and one is where does, what happens to the mind and perception as one goes deeper into that understanding. And that's what I'm calling the unfabricated. Oh, so this would be somebody who's had a direct realization of emptiness in, in, and you're deepening it yes. as they go along. In, in the Galug, exactly, yes, yeah, exactly that. Exactly mm-hmm. that, direct cognition of emptiness, precisely, yeah. So I'm, I'm just using slightly different language to say the same thing. Okay. <coughs> um, other sutta, he talks about going beyond perceptions of the four elements, you know, earth, air, fire, water, beyond any sense of the totality of perceptions and senses, beyond all the jhanas. Uh, another time he's talking to uh, a, a, a seeker and he says, by knowing the destruction of what is fabricated, be a knower of the unmade. Be a knower of the unmade. Okay. So what happens is this continuum is basically just that, a continuum. And it gets deeper and deeper. And as we were talking last night, at a certain point... The, the subject, object, time sort of uh, triumvirate, tripod thing collapses, it fades. And it's a, it's a gradual thing. The whole thing, as we're talking about, gets quieter and quieter, more, more and more, um, or less and less substantial, less and less present, until it, it breaks, it goes, it goes beyond that. Now sometimes we talk about the subject, object, duality, or subject, object, time sort of tri, triality. Try, try thingy. Um, sometimes a person says, and, and you hear, uh, um, I was doing this thing, I was washing the dishes, I was rowing my boat, and I, I had an experience of non-dual awareness, uh, or, or some, some language like that. And when, when, one, when they describe it a little bit, what they actually had was, uh, it turns out, was an experience where the mind just had a lot less chatter and a lot less sense of distraction or distance from the object. So there was much more sense of really kind of being absorbed in what they were doing, okay? Which is lovely, but it's a very different uh, 
kind of level than, than what I'm talking about. Um, they usually say, a person like this, uh, having that kind of experience, usually says there was no self there. there was, the self was just gone. The subject duality, duality collapsed, and I, there was just what I was doing. There was just the dishes, or just the you know rowing, or whatever it is. And, or just dancing, or just whatever. Um, but, as we've talked about, the self-sense has a spectrum to it. And if if one's not used to this, one, again, it fades a little bit, the self-sense, and one assumes it's completely gone, because one hasn't got one's eyes used to the subtle, more subtle senses of self. So actually it hasn't gone, and uh, all that's happened is it's a lot less distracted, a lot more present, a lot more in the moment. Lovely, but still quite a long way from the level that the Buddhists are talking about here. There isn't, in that experience, the understanding of this mutual dependency that I was talking about last night, uh, and there isn't that sense of fading. Now, if I talk about or we read about uh, an experience of the unfabricated, if we use that language, um, it's very easy at a certain point for a practitioner to start chasing that experience. Well, especially if one's quite used to a lot of fading, and this fades and that fades, and then one gets the sense, I can, <laughs> I can sniff it, and it's, it's right there. And one, almost without exception, starts gunning for it, pushing, pushing for it. Very natural, you know, very, very normal, put it that way. Um, shooting oneself in the foot totally shooting oneself in the foot, uh, to chase the experience. Um, and it's something that, um, you know, even m me saying it, I, I would need to repeat it uh, to a practitioner. It, it, it's a very strong tendency to go into that uh, relationship to it. What's much more important is the understanding, and the understanding of emptiness and dependent arising. So that's what's coming out of all this fading business. It's not about a particular experience so much although I wouldn't throw out the experience, but it's much more about the understanding, and particularly about dependent arising and dependent cessation. Okay, So hopefully the experience brings more understanding, um, and hopefully the understanding leads towards the experience, but it's the understanding that's important. So what's going on? Um, independent origination, John, John talked about and I talked about, we have these, these you know, uh, factors, ignorance, sankharas, consciousness, perception, etc. And when ignorance is less, or when clinging is less, the whole, I think I use this analogy one time, it's like piles of um, poker chips, and, and they just, the whole thing gets less. As ignorance is less, your pile in perception, which is part of nama and rupa, your perception of the world gets less. Yeah, understand. Mm -hmm. So, as ignorance fades, as clinging fades, as selfing fades, the whole thing goes down. When they get l more, the whole thing goes up. So we talk about dependent origination and dependent cessation, and it's just this movement. The Buddha uses the analogy of, of building, and, and there is this real sense that our experience of the world is built. And this, this is what we're exploring with dependent arising, that we build our world, we build our perceptions, we build our reality. And that's what's, uh, in a way, so radical to realize that that's what's going on. And, and I think I said this at one point as well, when the Buddha was enlightened and he uttered this spontaneous poem, it was, house builder, you've been seen, I see you. You know, your ridgepole has been shattered, your roof beams have, have been cast aside or, or something. 
And that's what he's talking about, this whole um, deluded way that we build reality and then fall for it and build more reality in response to that reality. So when the Buddha is talking about insight meditation, he talks about seeing form, seeing Vedana, seeing perception, seeing mental formation, seeing consciousness, and knowing, quoting again, such is form, such is perception, such is Vedana, such is its arising, and such is its disappearing. Now, to me, what that such means is not just that it arises and disappears and is therefore impermanent, but how how, such as it's arising, this is how it arises, this is how it ceases. In other words, dependent on clinging, ignorance, selfing. You see? It's not just pointing to impermanence. Something much more um, complete and profound being pointed to there. Um... Here's Sariputra talking to uh, another monk. And he's actually using this image that we've talked about a lot of two things relying on each other. He says, It is as if two sheaves of reeds uh, stood leaning against one another. In the same way, from Nama Rupa, remember Nama Rupa is um, form, but also the processes of the perceiving mind. The processes of the perceiving mind. Nama Rupa, from Nama Rupa, as a requisite condition, comes consciousness. In other words, from from um, these processes of perceiving mind, they actually give rise to consciousness. Um, dependent on perception is consciousness. Uh, from consciousness, as a requisite condition, comes Nama Rupa. Dependent on con- consciousness is Nama Rupa. It's, that, it's exactly that mutual dependency at a very deep level. And then once you've got Nama Rupa, once you've got all the perception, then you've got clinging, then you've got this, then you've got that, and he says this entire mass of stress and suffering comes from that. Okay. If one were to pull away one of those sheaves of reeds, the other would fall. If one were to pull away the other, the first would fall. In the same way, from the cessation of Nama Rupa comes the cessation of consciousness, from the cessation of consciousness comes the cessation of Nama Rupa, from the cessation of Nama Rupa comes the cessation of everything else and the entire mass of, of stress and suffering. Um, in a, a little bit, uh, what I've done on this retreat is point to that that mutual dependency is actually more uh, pervasive than is uh, hinted at in that quote. It's actually it's a principle throughout of dependent arising. As I said, that dependent arising is not linear. It's not this and then this and then this. It's a mutual, everything is mutually reinforcing everything else. And remember, in, in, in these uh, passages, consciousness means knowing of the six sense spheres, objects. Okay, that's what consciousness means. Okay, another one, if you can stand it. Um, this one's a little bit complicated, so I'll read it first and I'll, I'll explain. But Would a practitioner whose fermentations... Uh, have ended. Um, fermentations means ignorance, attachment to sense pleasure, attachment to being and becoming, okay, or to non-being, a rejection of being, um, or attachment to views. So uh, those four things, ignorance, attachment to sense pleasure, attachment to being or to non-being, 
becoming or non-becoming and attachment to views, if those are extinguished in a person, would that person then build something? Would there be a building, a fabricating, a sankaraing coming out of that? Okay. Would they fabricate something wonderful? Would they fabricate something not so wonderful? Would they fabricate a lovely state of uh, whatever? With the total non-existence of fabrications, um, from the cessation of fabrications, would consciousness be discernible? So actually, he answers the first question, would they fabricate anything? No, they wouldn't. If there's no ignorance, no desire for sense pleasure, it's that that movement, that intention to build something, doesn't, it doesn't arise. Um, with the total non-existence of fabrications, from the cessation of fabrications, would consciousness be discernible? Would it manifest? No. And then he says, if that if consciousness isn't there, would Nama Rupa be there? Would this be there? Would that be there? All the rest up to, would aging and death be discernible? No. And just kind of cutely at the end, he he goes, he takes them through all these questions and they keep saying, no, 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 Lord, no, Lord. And then he says, very good, monks. Just so should you construe it. Just so should you be convinced. Just so should you believe. Do not be doubtful. Do not be uncertain. This, just this, is the end of suffering. Okay. What he, in other sort of what he, what he it, it's hard to find a set a, a sort of sense of what what that is. This fading, this unfabricated, this direct cognition. So. Um, Another passage, he says, if we neither will nor determine nor are occupied with anything. In other words, if we're not um, trying to make something, trying to build something, struggling with experience, trying to do this or that, if that's totally and thoroughly not present, even at very subtle levels, then he says, there is no arising of an object. So this is this complete fading. There's no arising of an object for the persistence of consciousness, for the persistence of knowing objects. There being no object, there is no foothold for consciousness. Again, so consciousness is kind of resting on an object. It needs a support. So... I've got this book, which I haven't started reading, but it's absolutely massive and um, very encyclopedic and uh, scholastic. Um, so I'm keeping it in a corner. <laughs> but it's about different cultures, and specifically about the Dharma moving through different cultures. And I was just flicking through it, and one of the things it said is that the Indian culture, going back thousands of years, has a love of the negative formulation. In other words, not this, not that. It's not, not, not. Which is actually shared with a lot of mystical traditions. And the Buddha is quite similar. Actually, coming from that culture, talks a lot in negatives about nirvana. So it's not this, not that, not, not, not. And I've used this quote too. Buddha says, Where all phenomena cease, then all ways of speaking cease. Now that we can understand, actually, because language is basically is resting on concepts of subject and object, and we have that as sort of grammatical structures, you know, I did this, I am looking at this, and, and the notion of time. So when all that ceases, how are we going to even attempt to put that into language? Something completely beyond the conventional sort of ways of relating and thinking. 
but uh, he does occasionally do that, and um, he talks about, again, building and fabricating, being a bit like painting a picture, painting a picture on a wall or a canvas with different colors, and painting a picture of a man or a woman. And he says, if there is no craving for things, no uh, desire for contact, etc., Then, this is, this is quite interesting, I'm beginning to speak in a more positive way. He says, just as if there were a roofed house, so imagine a house, uh, or a roofed hall, having windows on the north, the east, and the south. Okay, so it's f- square, and three, three of the walls have windows. When the sun rises in the east, and a ray has entered by way of the window, where does it land? And I think it's Ananda, and Ananda says, on the western wall. And the Buddha says, and if there is no western wall on the ground? And, and the Buddha says, and if there is no ground uh, on the water? <laughs> I assume they're on an island or something here. And if there is no water? And then Ananda says, it does not land. It does not land. And the Buddha says, in the same way, when there is no craving for things, n- no craving for consciousness, no craving for contact, no craving for intention, then you're not building something. You don't build an object. And consciousness, he says, does not land or grow. Consciousness does not land or grow. That, I tell you, has no sorrow, no affliction, no despair. Okay? Yeah. In the previous quote that you read. Yes. Which one was that? One of these questions was would there be death? Would it be discernible? Hmm? Would death, would aging and death be discernible or manifest? Yeah, what does that mean exactly? It means would, well, uh, that's that's actually a big question. We could take, depending on how you are with this whole future lives and past lives and rebirth, etc. It could mean there's no there's no future rebirth, etc. It could mean that um, one has seen the emptiness of death, so that death is no longer a thing for consciousness. And so, I'll leave that to you where where you land with that. But it's, it's a big question. I actually don't really want to go into it. But <coughs> Um, there's a, there's another passage in, in the Samyutta Nikaya where the Buddha lists thirty I think it's thirty seven synonyms for nibbana, which is quite interesting, and some of a, a lot of them are not so positive, but some, sometimes it's like the truth, the subtle, the very difficult to see, the unmanifest, uh, the sublime, the amazing. So this consciousness not landing, we could put it otherwise, we say consciousness without an object. And what does that mean, consciousness without an object? So again, we say knowing, but without really knowing anything in the conventional sense of things that we're used to knowing. So again, if we say even space is a knowing, even nothingness is a knowing, any time there's a sense of a present moment, there is a knowing. What does it mean for consciousness to be there, but um, it's not being bound, it's not wrapped up. Usually, consciousness or knowing is wrapped up in an object. 
It's wrapped up in knowing something in a, in a time, in the present moment. So I know, uh, I, I, you know, I hear, I know the sounds, I know a sight, I know what I see, I know this or that. Consciousness and object and time wrapped up, as we talked about last night, in this kind of mutually bound together. What is it for that to be unbound? Consciousness without an object. So this this way of putting it, uh, the, the Buddha is actually more positive. It's not just a not this, not that, not, not, not. More positive. <clears throat> not the same as my teacher once, um, actually the first time I met him, I said, is that consciousness knowing itself? And he glared at me and said, uh, no. <laughs> um, so something different. It actually doesn't even know itself. It's It's completely unbound and released. So it's interesting, this thing about Indians and uh, the Indian culture liking the negative, uh, sort of not, 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 and the attraction of that for, for um, especially mystical language. As, as I mentioned one time, you know, what, what, happens, uh, what happened when the Dharma moved to cultures like China and Japan, which are very non-transcendent cultures. They're very, they have no interest in... Um, on the whole, no interest in a kind of going beyond the senses and any, any of this language would be very sort of anathema to that culture. One of the reasons why Buddhism was, it was very difficult for it to land there. Um, so usually that culture is much more about the, the sort of um, the, the pristine directness of this phenomena, the, 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 the ephemeral tent, you know, touch of this thing or that thing, and there's real, you know, real beauty in that as well. But there's one, there's probably a few Zen teachers who actually go for this, which is quite, is quite rare in, in that tradition. And Huang Po is one of them. Uh, absolutely love, love his teaching. Uh, but he's not a very popular Zen teacher, um, as far as I can tell, and partly because he seems to be leaning in a different direction from most Zen teachers. But he has a very beautiful passage. This pure mind, this knowing that doesn't know anything, we could say, this consciousness that doesn't know, this pure mind, the people of the world do not awake to it, regarding only that which sees, hears, feels, and knows as mind. In other words, this mind that we call mind, only only that. Then he says, blinded by their own sight, hearing, feeling, and knowing, they do not perceive the spiritual brilliance of that truth. So again, note the word spiritual, so it's not luminosity in the sense we're talking about uh, whenever it was. Realize that, realize that, though real mind, though this mind is expressed in these perceptions, it neither forms part of them, nor is it separate from them. So even him, it's like, he can't help but, but use the language of negatives, can't help but go to negatives. Something so beyond uh, the, the the realm of conceptuality and conceiving. Could you read that again? Yeah. This pure mind, the people of the world, do not awake to it, regarding only that which sees, hears, feels, and knows as mind. Blinded by their own sight, hearing, feeling, and knowing, they do not perceive the spiritual brilliance of that truth. And later he says, realize that though real mind is expressed in these perceptions, it neither forms part of them nor is it separate from them. Um, it's what? That's very different from what the, 
description of the Buddha way? Is it? Let's, let's see, I'll read a couple more of the Buddha and see, see what you think. This is from the Buddha in the Pali Canon. Consciousness without feature. Uh, a better way of translating that is non-manifestative consciousness. In other words, consciousness that's not manifesting an object. Without boundary, luminous all around. Here water, earth, fire and air have no footing. Here long and short, coarse and fine, beautiful and ugly, uh, name and form, again, the mental processes of perception, the perceptions of form, are all brought to an end. With the stopping of the six sense consciousnesses, each is here brought to an end. And there's another passage where it says almost exactly the same thing, but just similar to the Huang Po, that uh, very similar passage, but then he adds, this partakes of nothing at all in the phenomenal world. It's not what knows this or that. It's something else. Rob, yes. I'm getting very confused. Okay, let's let's take. Can I ask a question? Yeah, go there. Go for it. I, I don't understand what the difference between a non-manifesting consciousness, this pure mind. Mm-hmm. I, I must have missed something. Okay, so how is that different from, say, um, when we were you were talking the other night? Um, Consciousness, non-dual consciousness. Um, Okay. Uh, The other night we were talking about consciousness not having inherent existence. Okay. So that's um, this is similar to Annie's question a a little bit. uh, We can talk about the true nature of things not having inherent existence. Now, typically Mm -hmm. as human beings, we see things as having inherent existence. So we bodies, carpet, the whole the whole shebang, including mind. When we start letting go and contemplating the actual emptiness of those things, then it's like something actually begins happening to to our perceptions and consciousness. And one can arrive at a state that's a non-perceiving of of the usual things. What I want to point out is it's not different than this notion of of objects fading when we begin to contemplate their emptiness. And it's just a spectrum of that fading. So, one is, whether we see it or not, the quality, the fact of things is that they're empty of inherent existence. Mm -hmm. And then, it's possible, when you actually start meditating on that, to kind of go into that emptiness. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm talking about tonight. Mm -hmm. So, one's a kind of fact, whether I acknowledge it or not, it's just how things are, actually. Mm -hmm. And the other is, what happens when when I actually... Penetrate that meditatively. Yeah. yeah, but it's like when 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 we were having these Zogchen discussions, and it was like, you know, consciousness is non-dual. Um, so, well, no, consciousness consciousness I would say depends on an object. Yeah, that, well, that, I understand that. Okay. And I went along with all that, but now you're saying that consciousness can, doesn't have to have an object. Uh, but this now is a diff- different kind of consciousness. That's what. So what, when we when we mm-hmm. say, um, yeah, this is this is difficult. So I'm not I'm not at all pretending this. Uh, I'm not at all pretending this is easy to understand. Um, what we usually think of as consciousness mm. always goes with an object. Yeah. I know something. I know this. I know that. And they go together. They're mutually dependent. Yeah. When I start contemplating that in meditation, the whole show begins collapsing and fading slowly. 
and one can arrive at a place where either you don't put any words to it at all. Now, a lot of people just do that. Mm. They're just talking negatives. Well, mm. Just leave it. Sometimes the Buddha talks, and sometimes other people talk in positives, or in the sense of, it is consciousness, but it's consciousness without an object. Now, as such, it's a very different consciousness, same word, consciousness, mm. but it's a very different thing mm. than the kind of consciousness that we're usually used to. It has no sense of time in it, no sense of an object, no sense okay. of subject. So, is how is that then different from when they talk about non-dual consciousness? Well, you have to remember, like, like we've talked about, people use a lot of this language in different ways at different times. Yeah. So, like I said, someone would come or could I, be I read the same in, thing. could be, and it could be different. It could, but definitely could be the same thing. But okay. you, you know, the other day I was reading about this guy uh, rowing, and he said, "Yeah, no, yes. that opened yeah, up to yeah, the non." Yeah, yeah. And it turned out actually mm. all it was, as I said, was yeah. he was just a little bit more present. Yeah. Um, so. So the answer is find out for yourself. Basically, yeah. But, but just and just be aware that people use language gets so tricky. Yeah. So either we can just throw yeah. up our hands in the air and say, oh, pff, you know, might as well go down the pub or whatever, yeah. or um, or actually try and grapple with it. And yeah. but be be really aware that you know we have to be so so um, sensitive to the subtleties of language and the implications yeah. and the, the fact that, you know, I might say something, someone might understand something different or they might mean yeah. something, to, you know, yeah, so... Yeah, um, yeah, difficult, difficult. Actually, that did explain to me. Good, good. Say again? Does Buddha make use of the term Oi, um, the Pali Canon Buddha... Um, <laughs> um, he uses the language of dualities. I can't dredge up exactly, uh, but yes, at times, yeah, yeah. I can't exactly find what that is. More, more the language of dualities and what is based on duality than rather non, non, not language of non-dual awareness. Yeah, as far as I can tell. But in a way, when he puts things in in positives, like a little bit like this in the Pali Canon, that's a little bit what he's pointing to. Um, Here's another one, and this actually, for a different reason, is, is my, one of my favorites. And he says, There, I declare, is no coming and no going, no stopping, no passing away, and no arising. In other words, in this state, in this dimension. It is apatitam, uh, without foundation. It has, it, 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 it's not established. It doesn't have that support. Uh, without, it has no object, anaromanam, uh, no support of a mental object. And then the the thing I love about it, it is apawatam, apawatam. Uh, it means it doesn't continue. It doesn't continue. Okay, it's from the, I think it's from the Sanskrit, prawarta, uh, to something to continue in time. It's it's ongoing. It's not ongoing. It, what he's basically saying is it doesn't exist in time in the way that it is at that point. The sense of time is, is not. It's not a sense of this thing being. Um, you know, like an eternally lasting thing, or even a momentary thing. It's just, it's, leave time out of it. Okay? You can't be time if there's no object. Exactly. As we, as we spoke about yesterday, time is dependent on object, and so without object, there's no support for time. And so in that, in that, in that uh, dimension, whatever you want to call it, no subject, no object, no time. Not even the sense of a present moment as such. 
Um, so not something eternal in the sense of lasting forever. Some, something quite different is being of a quite different order is being is being um, uh, pointed to and, and kind of invited here. So. <laughs> yeah, just, uh, it's okay. Yeah, the night is young. <laughs> well, I was just thinking, you know, it is so different. Yes. And like you say, it's really another dimension. So it's a transcendent. I would use that word, and um, again, that's a word that's really not very popular anymore. Uh, it's not very popular at all. In fact, some of you were there, actually. I gave a talk at Sharpham nearby. And I can't remember what the title it is. Um, I think it was called something like, Is This It? Or Has Transcendence Gone Out of Fashion? And it was basically exploring what, what's, what, what has come to, uh, to be our relationship with the notion of transcendence in, in the Dharma. We're, we're at a very interesting juncture in the Dharma in the West right now because we have all these streams from different traditions around the world plus our own kind of Western tradition of the way we relate to things. And um, uh, what happens to notions like transcendence I think is very, very interesting because it actually has massive implications, massive. In, like it's not just this little intellectual curiosity about this word transcendence or, or this kind of stuff. It actually has huge uh, real implications on the way people practice and the way we think about practice and what we're kind of directing our practice towards. I, I think at a certain level it's colossal. Well, I, I didn't realize transcendence was so out of fashion. Uh, like somebody like Ken Wilber, into that I don't know too much of his writings. I'm talking more about in the, the Dharma world as, as the sort of circles. The Dharma world? Uh, um, talking more about uh, insight meditation tradition, yeah, and, and, and Zen traditions and stuff, the sort of world that I guess I tend to move in. That, that, uh, um, no, it transcends that. It will never go completely, totally be eradicated from human consciousness. There will always be something in human consciousness that that yearns for the transcendent in in some people it will it will never die it's something so deep in the being and there will always be the opposite uh something in some people that rejects transcendence and moves towards uh just the phenomenal as being you know and so that that's a kind of you know polarity that's always going to be there well, when you say transcendent you mean beyond the conventional beyond conventional reality beyond the perception of this, what we typically take as our world and this, the world of the six senses yeah yeah um, okay. Um, now, the question, the question, kind of, the question becomes at a certain point: What is the nature of this thing? What is what is this exactly? Does it kind of exist, or does it not exist? And and again, to be really wary of this pre-deciding and this kind of pull one way or another. So at some point, uh, a monk asked Sariputra, was foremost in wisdom, second to the Buddha only in wisdom. And he says, with the remainderless stopping and fading of the six sense spheres of contact, so in other words, when all this fades, is it the case that there is anything else? In other words, is something else there? And Sariputra says, don't say that. You can't really say that. And he goes, 
okay, can we say that there is nothing then, that there's not, not anything else? And he says, don't say that either. <laughs> so in a very, very Indian uh, philosophical fashion, he says, um, is it both there is something else and there isn't something else? And Sarah says, don't say that either. <laughs> and he says, okay, is it neither that there is nor that there isn't something else? And he says, sorry, you can't say that either. To say any of those would be, he actually uses the word papancha, to Papanchais to complicate, to proliferate what is actually free from papancha, free from proliferation. In other words, again, the conceptual mind cannot go there and say it's, it is or it isn't. It's beyond notions of existence and non-existence. So going right back to, uh, I think it was the first kind of introductory talk on emptiness in the first few days, and I said um, emptiness is actually an adjective. It's actually an adjective in the sense that Strictly speaking, we say something is empty. So this thing or that thing or consciousness or blah, 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 blah is empty. And as such, uh, emptiness is relative to something. It depends on something. Okay. So as such, emptiness too is empty. I think John has touched on this with you. You talk about the emptiness of emptiness, which actually isn't, it's not like the final you know, the final, and it's just actually saying something that we can say right away, that emptiness is actually an adjective, and as such it always goes with something. It's always dependent on something that is empty. You know, without that thing being there, there's no emptiness of that thing. But still, for a practitioner, if there is this really deep fading, and it does go to, you know, that point, or around that point, there's this total fading, uh, I, I, like Sariputra, one would, I feel be really uninclined to say it exists or doesn't, to, to say it has inherent existence or it doesn't, or it's, it's almost like there's something in there that you just are reluctant to say, reluctant to, to rush in and say um, there is no deathless or, or it does or it doesn't or this or that. Um, and again, going back to what I said earlier, it's, it's one thing to sort of make statements about this without without that degree of fading. And it's another thing to experience something and, and have that sense of um, really not um, not wanting to make a verbal statement about something. F this is a very charged area, this whole notion of transcendence and phenomenalism or whatever the opposite of transcendence is, imminent. Um, and this whole notion of whether there is a deathless, etc. It's actually very charged in the Dharma world. There's a lot of uh, you know, for 2,500 years, people have been butting heads about it, and they still do. And there's this lot of sort of backbiting and, you know, and <laughs> all kinds of stuff going on. But again, what I keep saying is, are, are you pre-deciding it? Are you pre-deciding it? So m m one of my teachers, Ajahn Jeff, I keep mentioning, he has, he has a translation for Nirvana as unbinding, which actually is a really, really skillful translation. Um, it, it could be translated in a number of different ways. Um, one is the kind of blowing out of a candle. Vana is related to wind, like vent. Um, but unbinding near Vana, uh, something, like as I said, subject, object, time, bound together, and it's unbound. And then what, rather than saying it's this thing, you're talking about unbinding, which again is a negative, but it's, a, it's the absence of the usual binding. At first, um, uh, this is sort of from speaking, 
uh, how, does, how do I say this? Um, it might well be the case that someone opening to this at first would take it as a kind of object. But still, I would say that's an improvement over just deciding that there is no such thing when you're nowhere near experiencing it. You know, even if, to, 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 to be near the experience and then un, you know, take it as an object is still... Do you understand what I'm saying? So, just to end, um, and to repeat something I said, the understanding is more important than the experience. The understanding is more important than the experience. There's a continuum of fading, and you can say it goes towards this unfabricated. Um, but it should, this fading should bring the understanding that all things are empty. It should bring this understanding that emptiness is the nature of all things. The lack of inherent existence is the nature of all things. And with that understanding, uh, another quote from the Buddha, he says, someone who understands that is free of conjuring. He is conjuring free. It goes back to these um, references of it all being an illusion, like a magician's trick. Someone who's seen that, or seen it to the degree that they're totally free, because you can see it and it frees to a certain extent, uh, is conjuring free, does not submit to conjuring, does not submit to the cycling of time. So they're free of all, you know, they know that this conjuring is going on and they're not buying it. Conjuring means to, like, make an illusion, to conjure, to, to um, make, like a magician making a trick. C-O-N-J-U-R-E, conjure. Conjure. So, what that means, the understanding is more important than the experience. It means for us all in this room that all this practice that we're doing is good. And actually to go right back to the beginning of the talk, all that width of practice and wherever, whatever it is that's... Put, so I'm aware, I give, give a talk like this, and for some people they think, oh, it's not very interesting to me. You know, I don't know. It doesn't... It doesn't it, and that's totally fine. It sounds like... Not only not interesting, it might even sound like actually it sounds horrible. I don't want. I don't want to go anywhere near it. Um, all all of that range of practice is good. All of that range of practice is good. All of it's beautiful. And if we talk about understanding emptiness, any level of the emptiness seen is good. So you know, one might see, oh, I feel trapped in this relationship, and then I and or this job situation. Then I see actually going back to stuff we've talked about. Here's the mind connecting those dots and sticking them all together in something solid. And then I see, oh, it's actually, it doesn't have that solidity that it seems to. That's understanding emptiness at a certain level. And that's, um, you know, wonderful, lovely. And, and there's possibility of developing, developing and deepening that understanding. So all this, all the cultivation we do, all the samadhi, all the insights into all kinds of stuff, all the insights into emptiness and the, the deepening and deepening that, all of them, the whole path, is in the service of being able to let go. That's what it's all for. So in different ways, the cultivation, the samadhi, the insights, the emptiness insights, all of that uh, bring the capacity to let go. They, they uh, feed and nourish the capacity to let go. And... Out of that comes freedom, and comes also love. So all all of this is in the service of freedom and love, and uh, it's kind of all available to us as practitioners. It's all kind of there as this, uh, you know, offering for us. 
So let's let's have some quiet together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.